You passed your luck check. It's the No Class Podcast with your host, Eddie and Eddie. That's right, folks. Alone again without you and without Matt. We have gone about a month without an episode, so I figured it was time that we checked in. This will be episode number 86. I was uh, doing a little looking at our stats. This is our ninth episode of the year, where we should probably be at 20 right now if we were doing twice a month like we would like to. It's just been a busy, 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 busy uh, for me and Matt and lining up the schedules. I'd say it's probably going to be safe to say that we'll get 12 podcasts in this year. Uh, if everything goes right, we will have another interview with DCC Goodman Games, Brendan LaSalle, as well as a long con wrap-up, which those are always a bit of a freebie episode for us. We don't have to do a lot of work. We can just tell you how things went. Speaking of Matt and his busy schedule, I want to say congratulations to him and Heather for tying the knot. That was earlier this month in October. You can congratulate the both of them when you see them working the desk at the Long Con. So speaking of the Long Con, it's going extremely well. Badge sales, ticket sales, game submissions, hotel reservations, everything will be ended about the time that you hear this. We are locked in for November. Uh, the last of the supplies have been ordered. So there's nothing left now except to do it and hope it all comes out well. I'll remind you that we are trying out the gamers swap meet this time to see how that goes. Uh, just bring in your uh, used, new, whatever you've got, stuff that you'd like to get rid of and give it to a new home and do a little trading or selling to your fellow gamer. So we'll see how that goes. Usually people are ready to leave on Sunday and not get into another game. So hopefully this is something a little bit quicker that people can do if they want to and we've watched Etten Games do the uh, flea markets and they always seem like they come out pretty good the swap meet thing so we'll see it gives everybody an opportunity and uh, if you've got some stuff left you can always donate it to your good friends at the long con and you'll see it again next year I'll also put in a plug right now for my busyness to say that I've been doing yet another podcast this one is called Dice and Mallet and it is about board games. So if you are like me and kind of go through back and forth with both of these gaming worlds, that's something you might be interested to check out. You can find that on Spotify, Dice and Mallet. And I'm going to go ahead and claim right now that I am Dice. These are not uh, named after us, not Dice and Mallet. But if it's going to become a Hootie and the Blowfish situation, somebody's got to be Hootie. And somebody's got to be the Blowfish. So I'll be Dice and... Uh, my buddy Rock, who's the host or co-host, however you want to say that, can be Mallet because he's Joy Hammer Games. All right, on our typical format here, we do books, movies, and TVs. This whole one today is going to be, or my topic for today, is going to be a book. So what I will say about books is I have been reading the Energon Universe which is a, a bunch of comic books tied together in the Image Skybound label and written by Robert Kirkman. The first of that has been Void Rivals, which has really been a good book. 
Uh, it's about two different warring alien races trying to survive together. Uh, two of them get stranded together and they have to put aside their differences. You've heard that a million times, but it's been very entertaining so far. And they are also in the Energon universe, which is the world of the Transformers. So while this is going off in space on Earth, the Ark, the Autobot spaceship, has crash landed there. And kind of like the Batman origin story, you're going to see his parents get killed in nine out of ten movies. Nine out of ten times in Transformers stories, you're going to see the mythos where the uh, ship crashes into the Earth and then the robots get reactivated. So in this version, they're getting activated uh, kind of in a helter-skelter manner. So maybe an Autobot gets awakened, a Decepticon gets awakened, and it's just randomly going off. And as they're awakening, they're fighting. And one of the, spoiler alert, jump ahead about 30 seconds maybe, one of the interesting things in this one is as soon as Starscream jumps up awake, he blasts Bumblebee in the face. So this one's not playing around to kill beloved characters like that. So it's been interesting, really good, highly recommended if you are a Transformers fan. Uh, G.I. Joe books will be coming also, set in this world. So that's something to look forward to for the G.I. Joe fans. Uh, my book report that I'm going to be doing is called Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons by Ben Riggs. So we will get there in just a few minutes. But before that, I will talk about a movie that I've watched. This one's got to be 90s, 2000s, somewhere in that. It's Catch Me If You Can with Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. And yes, I'm old enough that I didn't ever watch the movie back then because it was Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, it just didn't really appeal to me. It's like, eh, is this kid really going to take off? Because he'd had all those uh, teen pop bebopper movies, as we'll say. Really, really feeling old today for that one. Anyway, so it's also a Steven Spielberg. So it has the pedigree where you think this should be a pretty good movie. It tells the story of a con man named Abignale and about his uh, rather unbelievable scams that he pulled. Maybe one of the most famous, because you see him in the advertisement in the trailer always running around in the pilot suits with all the stewardesses because he would pretend to be a pilot and uh, get free flights that way. He wasn't actually flying planes, luckily. A lot of the stories are completely unbelievable, and there's a reason for that because they are completely unbelievable. A lot of people, reporters mostly, have looked into the stories now and said, you know, when he said this story was going on, he was actually in jail at that time so it couldn't have possibly happened and when they researched a lot of it like uh one of the stories he's telling is he's a posing as a doctor supervising doctor in an emergency pediatric emergency room uh, doing a night shift and the hospital came back and said we never had a night shift for that so a lot of it will be disproven as you go down the rabbit hole to look it up but it is an entertaining movie so i do recommend you check that one out for some TV recommendations and non-recommendations, what have I been watching? Gen Z, an offshoot of The Boys, which is a story about superheroes in college. And yes, it has all the uh, PC stuff that you would expect from a college. Make sure you get consent before you use your superpowers and stuff like that. And just how it can be, 
how those lines would really get blurred in a world with superpowers. And naturally, there is some experimentation going on beneath the college that they're experimenting on supers. So that mystery unravels as you go through the show. You get some guest appearances by members of the boys and some of the other side characters that are in the comics that haven't made the, sh- the uh, I guess, the main show yet. I was going to say after the first show, so if we'd actually been doing podcasts up to date like we should be, you probably would have had a show where I said, based off the first one, I don't even know if I'm going to watch it anymore. That first episode was not that bad. It was just, I don't know, it didn't strike the tone with me. However, after watching a couple more episodes, I'm in. It's pretty good. Something else that I really enjoy is the Castlevania series on Netflix. So now, just in time for Halloween, there is Castlevania Nocturne, which takes place during the Rondo of Blood game, Castlevania X, and is the story of Richter Belmont. This show, I can't remember exactly the story, but it seemed like the writer of the previous show ended up getting canceled for something. So they have a new writer. It's a new cast. And I'm not enjoying this one nearly as much. Story-wise, plot-wise, there's a lot of really dumb stuff going on. For example, there's five heroic characters and they're going to sneak into this vampire hideout, you know, as everyone does in these sort of situations. They're like, I'll go. And the main character, Richter, is like, no, you couldn't possibly go. Only four of us can go. It'll be hard enough for four of us to sneak in. It's like four people can sneak in, but five can't. I wonder why that is. And the reason is so that they won't have that character uh, to be in that battle so that one of them can get killed which will be a plot point down the road. Yeah, it was a lot of where stupidity has to move the plot in some of it. So, nah, I just didn't like it as much, but I am a big fan of the game Castlevania X, or Dracula X, Rondo of Blood. Castlevania X is the U.S. version. Rondo of Blood is the Japanese version. And as nerdy as it is to say... The Rondo of Blood version is the superior version. And that's probably the easiest to get a hold of because you could probably download like Castlevania Collection and it's in there. So definitely check out the game. Uh, Richter Belmont's one of my favorite Castlevania characters. He's probably one of the first ones in the games that actually have much of a personality because, you know, the cutscenes and such in a Nintendo game weren't really there. So I think this one was PlayStation. Sounds right to me. We'll go with that. One thing that surprised me that I did like was the latest season of Archer. It's a good season. It's not great, but it's better than a lot of them have been. So it's only eight episodes long, which is, it still strikes me as odd when you get these eight and 12 episode long seasons, the streaming world now, because you don't get 26 episodes of anything anymore like you used to. And a lot of times that's a good thing, but this time eight did seem kind of short, but check it out. I enjoyed it. The last one that I'll bring up to you that I've been watching or re-watching is Yu Yu Hakusho, the spirit detective, the ghost files of Yu Yu Hakusho. That's a 90s anime. Uh, It was big around the time of Dragon Ball Z. It's the story of a spirit detective, a high school spirit detective, of course who is fighting 
demons and devils to protect the human world. So if you like Dragon Ball, if you like the supernatural theme, this might be something you want to check out. And I'm just dipping in right now. I'll probably watch this one uh, Dark Tournament arc and not watch any more of it. But if you've never seen it before, I highly recommend it to you. Some very cool characters, some very interesting powers, and a good story overall. Oh, and uh, as my wife would point out and say, it actually has an ending. Some of these shows just go on and on and on forever. So this one, there might be a hundred episodes or something. I'm just pulling that number out, but it does have a proper real ending. It's not infinite going nowhere and just recycling the same thing over and over. So we do have that going for us on that show. And now to your topic, slaying the dragon, a secret history of dungeons and dragons by Ben Riggs. The first thing I'm going to say about this is how you have the author's voice in your head when you're reading a book. This is probably the first one that I can think of where I've really hated having the author's voice in my head. It was very annoying. It came across in ways that I did not like. Smug in the wrong places? Smarmy? I don't know. I just, it was weird. So there was some good information in this book. I'm going to give you a lot of it. But just in general, like the, I don't know, author's viewpoint, I didn't care for it. So... I don't want to say there's like an antagonistic read when you're going through it, but yeah, it was weird. I'm trying to think what was the other book that playing at the world. So that one gives you a lot of the beginning of D and D setup. How did it get started? Arnson and Gygax creating D and D and it's, that one is dry. It's like a textbook, but it's really good and it's very factual. This one, again, is factual, but man, the author's point of view, his voice, however you want to say it, it just didn't come across. But there was plenty of good information to get out of it. I think the book is about 300 pages. If you have read Playing at the World, you can skip to at least 70 pages and just skip to part two, the Williams era. A lot of that is repetitive. So if you've already heard the story, the creation story of Dungeons and Dragons, just go ahead and skip up. That's my recommendation to you. What I would have liked to have got out of this book more, though, and what I expected was more in the Watsi era, the 3.0 and 3.5 days. And then, like I said, we are skipping ahead to part two, the Williams era. This is talking about Lorraine Williams who became the head of TSR after Gary Gygax was cast aside. My opinion coming into this was that she was a total speculator, a market speculator. She thought there's a lot of money to be made here and that she had a disdain for gamers and the product that TSR put out. This was only about money for her. There was no gaming passion, which I would say is Part of that is okay. Somebody should have come in and what probably would have been for the best is if somebody came in with a business mind and ran TSR like the business that it was. The part that they didn't need was for that to be somebody that didn't like gaming and did not like gamers. Monopoly man or whatever coming in. You're uh, Mr. Wonderfuls or Mark Cubans or somebody that just does not have any passion for gaming. At least they don't have a hate for it. 
or they, they look down upon people. So I always got that impression. That's the, as the story and the lore got handed down from game shop to gamer, that was the picture that I had of her. You do have to admit that she saved TSR, but what was the cost? She did save it for a time. There was a good chance it could have gone right into the ground with Gary running it shortly after. If he'd been able to continue running it, that could have been the end of the game. They really needed financing and financiers. So she came in with that money and kept TSR afloat. But that was a band-aid on a big open gaping wound that only got worse. So she saved it, but at what cost? For those of you that haven't heard the story that their family owned the Buck Rogers rights, and so TSR kept publishing T or kept publishing Buck Rogers books, and people were like, "No one is buying this. Why do we keep publishing this uh, game materials and stuff for Buck Rogers?" But the suspicion was that it was her way of keeping that trademark alive and double dipping in that she's producing a product and she's getting paid for them producing that product because she owns the rights. At this time in the TSR story, Forgotten Realms box set with adventures and that sells thousands or tens of thousands of copies. Whereas with a novel that can sell hundreds of thousands of copies to million, a million copies. Novels are really becoming a big product for the company at this time. Lorraine Williams takes the wheel. One of the first thing they do is start treating their novelist as a commodity, as something common that anybody could write this novel. We don't need you. We've got the property and that's what makes the books good. Uh, for example, Margaret Weiss did not like any of her interactions that she had with uh, Williams and said that TSR became all about the money. The Dark Sword Trilogy, which I am a fan of, which is the story of a man born into a world full of magic. He has no magical properties. He has no magical abilities. His magical ability is that he is a technologist. He can build machines. So this is like the worst thing that you can be in that world. That's like you're a necromancer sort of thing. You're using this dead magic. Science is so evil. When they went in to bargain for this book, they were going to give it to TSR first. TSR had passed on it. And so they ended up talking to Bantam Publishing. Bantam ends up offering them, making them an offer for 30000 Hickman and Weiss are like, 30000 for this trilogy? That's fantastic money. We'll be happy to do it. That's great. And they said, no, 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 no. That's for all three. Or that's, we're going to pay you that for each book in the trilogy. So 90000 And that just goes to show you exactly how poorly they were being paid by TSR at the time. TSR paid the lowest and felt that authors were replaceable. When they did this uh, Dark Trilogy book, Elmore, Larry Elmore, the artist, said that he'd also wanted to leave TSR and go along with them. So they ended up letting him do some of the art with that and got him into the uh, wider publishing world as well. Another thing that the book brings up is that after losing Gygax for Greyhawk and then losing Hickman and Weiss for Dragonlance, they had to find another world. So that's when you really start to see the popularity of Forgotten Realms by Ed Greenwood come in to be almost the default setting. Uh, in 1987, R.A. Salvatore enters the picture. He begins writing the Dritz novels. Second edition D&D is being produced. The sales numbers were never revealed to the staff. So if you uh, made a project, you wouldn't know if it was a huge success or it had been an abysmal failure. 
You just had to kind of guess how products had sold. Okay, so one of the things that we want to talk about too is the RPG consumption problem. This refers to the fact that if you buy the one book or you buy your one set, if you've got DMG and Player's Guide and maybe the Monster Manual, you don't ever need any more books. If you make up your own adventures, that's it. <clears throat> and you don't even really need a copy for everybody at the table if you're willing to share. So for a very low fee, you can get into this hobby and never pay anything again. And that's where editions come in. And that's why second edition became more of a thing was really two purposes. One, so that they have a new product. And two, so they didn't have to pay Arnson and Gygax as much on their royalties. It was an attempt, especially for Arnson, to get him completely out of it. And that's why that one became Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. So editions are there to try and make you buy, rebuy your books every five years. This book also tells the story of TSR West, which is, was an attempt to break into the comic book line. They started publishing some books with DC. So they have a deal with DC Comics where they're going to, DC Comics is going to publish a line of D&D comics. So as those start to grow and do well, TSR decides we're going to do that ourselves, but we're going to call them comic modules, which is basically a comic book that includes gaming materials in it. Part of what they did with these comic modules is you'd have a comic book story and then at the end there might be a couple of pages that were dedicated to a little game that you could play. So rip out this page of the comic and it's your board and rip out that page and cut out the tokens so that you can play this game, which comic collectors obviously did not like. They did not want to destroy their books. So that was a problem with comic modules and why they didn't take off. The other thing was Nobody was really aware of what exactly a comic module was. They did not go through the typical comic book distribution. They went through Walden Books where they had an agreement to put them up. So they were not on the comic book stands with your normal comics. They were folded away with the, or they were tucked away with the D&D books. First, you had to know what you were looking for. And second, you had to be actually want it and understand what it was. So that was one of the things that made the comic modules very difficult. Additionally, the one thing that comic modules did succeed at is ruining their relationship with DC Comics. So as soon as the comic modules started coming out, DC canceled all of the D&D &D comic book lines and sued them. So TSR burned that bridge immediately. The comic modules did not last for very long. They they tried to struggle along, but it didn't gain any traction. And when it came to shut down TSR West, all these employees were fired without notice. They could not go back into their offices and get stuff. They seized their computers. All the things that you hear about now, you, you don't really think about that happening back in the 90s where it's like, no, you can't get any information off your hard drive or any of that. So they were really a heartless company, TSR in that way. And when you think about it, you do think about, oh boy, TSR must have been so fun to work for and you get to make the games and you get to be a part of D&D &D, when it's like, no, it was completely a heartless corporation. Uh, moving on to 1990, Ravenloft comes out in an attempt to gather to catch the horror RPG fans. In 1991, Dark Sun sells even better than Ravenloft. Uh, not that any of the staff knew that because, of course, 
they were kept in the dark. So you may think that Ravenloft was a huge hit and Dark Sun did better, but it wasn't a huge hit. But the people that did Ravenloft did not know when they were working on it if there was going to be another one. So they just had to assume that it went well. This all got into dividing the market is the big problem, though. Uh, novels become even more of a factor. Uh, the Ravenloft novels were selling very well. I want to say one of the Dark Sun books came out and hit the bestsellers list. So now you have the game publisher that's making a lot more off of novels than anything else. They were so popular that the rumor at the time said that they were going to stop making games and just go to novels instead. And that people who were game designers would become novelists and people that were doing the game art would just become artists for book covers and stuff like that. Uh, TSR could get permission to do a lord of the ring game around this time they could have got permission but when they found out that they could not produce any new novels williams decided that she would pass so think of what could have been if we'd actually been able to get a lord of the rings game back in that time but again what they wanted was rights to do novels and i think we can all agree that would have been pretty horrible so when they didn't get those rights she said that the whole thing would be a it wouldn't be worth the time if they could only put out a game and no new novels Battletech and Mech Warrior were also coming out at the same time, along with White Wolf taking a bite out of the market. From what I could see locally, White Wolf was really taking a big share of the market too. You'd have people that played the White Wolf games like Vampire or Werewolf and did not play D&D. I wonder if there was more game diversity at the time as opposed to now where you could get more D&D players to transition over to other games than the amount of fifth edition only people that we see now one example of how poor the management was of tsr at the time is the board game dungeon strike it sold 100,000 copies and got an order for 50,000 more which i think this game is pretty much if it's remembered is remembered as a flop but actually 150,000 in sales is pretty darn good when they asked james ward about how much more to print he said, just make those 50000 that we have orders for because the initial sales will always surpass follow-up orders. So if we sold 100000 to start with, we're never going to sell more than that. So what does Lorraine Williams do? She prints 150000 more. The extra 100000 never sold, which leads to maybe the most interesting point in the book, which is the Random House deal. So first, let me go back and talk about Dragon Strike. Why it seemed like such a failure is because of those extra 100,000 copies, they just had so many sitting around in warehouses. You could find them on shelves for so long. So they were everywhere because, hey, there was another extra 100,000 that nobody wanted. Okay, to the Random House deal. This was by far the most interesting thing in the book. If you only get one point out of this book, this is the one. Let me try to paraphrase what is said in the book. Most publishers send their books to the distributor. The distributor takes the books and sells them to stores and then pays the publisher. The publisher is paid according to the sales. So if you sell 100 books, you get paid your portion for 100 books. But with TSR, Random House paid them upon delivery of product, regardless of the sales numbers. So TSR did not need to sell to get paid. They just needed to deliver. So if you need some money, why not print? 150,000 extra copies of a board game because all you have to do is deliver to get paid. But that's not the whole story because that money is just a loan with interest. So they get paid in advance and what gets returned, they're going to have to repay that money with the interest on top of that. If product is returned for not selling, 
TSR is on the hook for that. When sales are strong, it's not a problem. When sales are weak, it's just kicking the can further down the road. They could actually still succeed with this method if their returns were 20% or less. Unfortunately, in 1990, the percentage of returns hit 30%. That was the beginning of the end for TSR. That's when the bubble was really burst in this second age of D&D. So we'll take a brief diversion away from that to talk about the horrible way that the artists were treated. They were another disposable commodity, much like the authors. Jeff Easley had a chance to do a cover for the Elvira video game, but he didn't. He was unable to get permission at the time because there was nobody around. So he said, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Nobody's going to find out anyway, and I'll do it under an assumed name. Of course, when it did all come out, he had a screaming Lorraine Williams come to him and tell him how they were going to sue him for doing this, which he quickly figured out after that that they weren't going to. They just wanted to try and scare him and let him know that they were the ones in charge. They also had originally let authors keep their work, which ended up being an additional source of income for the artist because they could sell that artwork. Then they ended up changing their policy and keeping the art in-house, which we heard stories down the road when uh, TSR was coming to an end that a lot of artwork just got ended up getting tossed. So not only did they take money out of their artist pocket, they annoyed them and irritated them and angered them by making this change. And then in the end, a lot of that artwork was never saved. A lot of that artwork was just completely lost. So... Just another way that TSR did not care about their creatives. The great artists and authors owned nothing of their works, got paid peanuts while being viewed by management as being completely replaced. In June of 95, TSR owes Random House almost $12 million. They work out a payment plan between them. If TSR misses a payment, the total will be due immediately. TSR's response to this second chance from Random House is to immediately begin courting Macmillan Publishing. Uh, Macmillan and Random House are having uh, presentation conventions at the same time. TSR is supposed to be doing a presentation for Random House. They do not inform Random House until the morning of their presentations. They leave their rooms booked. They leave all their presentation times scheduled. And instead of going to Random House's convention, they end up going to the Macmillan to present. And as always, whenever TSR chose to snub one person over another or try and go their own way in some way that would uh, maybe violate a contract, of course, the person that they're courting, nothing comes of it, and all they end up doing is pissing off the person that they needed to work with and completely blow that deal. So, of course, TSR ends up missing a payment, Random House sues them, and that opens the door for them to be bought out by Wizards of the Coast which, fortunately, they had also had an antagonistic relationship with. There's a lot more of the story. There is more to Watsy buying out TSR for pennies on the dollar. And I will leave that for the book because we have gone into this quite a bit. There's not a ton left. I really do wish there was a lot more about the Watsy period and Watsy going into Hasbro, but maybe that'll be the next book that comes out. Um, Slaying the Dragon... Interesting book. Uh, definitely recommend playing with the world, playing at the world a lot more. 
Well, by the clock on the wall, I can see we're all out of hit points. Ugh.